We've been uh, looking at the book of Amos for about six weeks now. If, you, if it's your first night at Church in the Graveyard, it's going to be a bit weird because uh, we're coming to the end of this series on Amos, which is a bit of a weird book anyway. Um, being a Christian is always involves living in the light of the future. That's why I had that second reading, the first reading from Mark there, where Jesus tells us to be ready to watch, or another translation has it, keep awake. It's kind of living in the light of a, the, the, the coming realities. It strikes me as I've reflected on this that one way of summing up the last few weeks, what we've seen in Amos, is that Amos has challenged us, has, has, has called us to wake up. Do you know what I mean, if you've been here? To wake up to who God is and what he cares about. Amos has been like a slap in the face to wake us up to the reality of God and his judgment, his coming judgment. We've been challenged not to fall into a sleep where we forget how things really are, but to recognize that God's judgment is real and that he is really angry about things in our world and in each one of us. Amos has relentlessly reminded us that God is real, that he is the king, that he can't be ignored, and that he will not put up with sin and evil forever, with injustice and oppression and religious hypocrisy. God will come in judgment, Amos has kept saying, and don't forget it, wake up. But it's quite tiring staying awake, isn't it? In the movie The Matrix, sorry to use this illustration again, by the way. Uh, I just I have a baby and I don't get out that much at the moment. <laughs> but in the movie The Matrix, one of the people on Keanu's team, that is, the humans who've been extracted from the Matrix, which is a simulation of reality, um, you got you know, but there might be some people who haven't seen it. Uh, there you go. One of these guys is called Cypher, and he is unhappy with his situation. Um, He constantly wishes that he had never been rescued, and that he could just go on living in his illusion world. And he eventually does a deal to betray his friends and be reinserted back into the Matrix as a rich, successful person, because as he puts it, as he munches on a delicious piece of Matrix-simulated steak, Ignorance is bliss. Do you feel a bit like that? Are you a bit tired of Amos, a bit glad we're finishing up this evening? I wouldn't be surprised if you were. When, when my wife and I were having a baby, we actually thought of, I was quite keen on if we had a boy, Amos, as the name. She vetoed that sensibly. Um, it's enough grief being a minister's kid, let alone being saddled with a name like that. But, you know, reading it, it's kind of... Haven't, maybe that wasn't such a good idea uh, by me. Because it's not that much fun being reminded of this stuff over and over again, is it? Imagine you go to work on Monday morning and a colleague asks about the weekend and when you bravely say, oh, I went to church, imagine she asks you, oh, what, what was it about? What was the sermon about? And you say, well, basically, basically we heard about how everything's stuffed. 
You know, it's not win friends and influence people stuff, is it? Now, of course, if we feel like this, let's just for a moment imagine what it must have been like for Amos. I mean, this was his life's work. And he didn't even know about Jesus. He didn't, but he did see something. Something that changed his prophecy completely. Right at the end of the book of Amos, there is this blinding flash of light out of the deepest darkness. Right at the end, when all hope is lost, the curtain has fallen, the lights have come on, the audience have just started to leave, there is this last unexpected act which throws everything else in a new light. And brothers and sisters, as we finish this series, we've got to hear it because it can give us the key to keeping awake because it reminds us that the last word, the last word belongs to God and it is a word of life. So please have a look with me at Amos chapter 9. It would be really just great to have that open in front of you. Um, Somebody's going to give me a page number. 912, that's the page it's on, but we'll pick up from verse 7. Our passage begins, however, with a reminder that God's judgment is real. It begins in a dark place. Uh, It picks up at maybe the darkest moment in the whole book, as we saw last week. Amos has announced God's final judgment on Israel. I will spare them no longer, he said back in chapter 8, verse 2. I will fix my eyes on them for harm and not for good. The end has come on Israel because of her persistence in evil. And the beginning of our passage drives this point home in a terrible way. Look at verse 7. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites, says the Lord, as the Ethiopians? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor and the Arameans from Kir? Do you see what's going on here? God is saying, you're just like the other nations to me now. You're dead to me. You're not special. It's, it's dreadful. Imagine, imagine if God were to say to us, aren't you just like the other religions, you Christians? Didn't I? Yeah, I gave you the Bible and the Muslims, the Quran and the Hindus, the Bhagavad Gita. I had to look that up. But, <laughs> but that, that would be appalling, wouldn't it? You know, But that's what God says has happened here. Israel's relationship with God has just, it's like it never was. And therefore, verse 8, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, says God. Judgment is assured. Now, this is not the main point of my sermon, but as we finish Amos, we need to make sure we've heard this and reckoned with it. God's judgment is real. The Lord is a God who roars, as Amos so powerfully put it. Now, we haven't made much of this on the way through, but it's just worth remembering that what Amos said would happen here did actually happen. Within a generation, 
In 722 BC, Amos is probably around 760, 750. In 722, the army of the Assyrian Empire marched into Israel, invaded and wiped it off the map. The northern kingdom to which Amos had preached and prophesied was never seen again as a political and social reality. And brothers and sisters, if God could and did judge his people Israel, then he can judge us. But more than this even, that's one thing. But if Jesus had to die to save us, then that means we're not just in a little bit of trouble. Our sins, our failures to live as God calls us to, our self-centeredness, our injustice and unfaithfulness to God, these things really do provoke the anger of God so that this world and all of us are really genuinely threatened by the judgment of God. If Amos hasn't shown us that, then he's shown us nothing. And yet, moving back to the main line, something happens here in Amos, in verse 8. That means there's more to say. Look at the end of verse 8. Yet, says God, I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob. What? I mean, if you've been with us the whole way through, I hope you feel the shock of that. Amos is a remarkable book because there's actually just so little hope throughout. There is no good news at all for Israel, just an assurance of God's judgment. But now, unexpectedly, a a chink opens and we see some light. And verses 9 and 10 develop this idea. Have a look at them there. God will shake the house of Israel among the nations like someone shakes a sieve in order to separate some bits from others. When it says not a pebble will fall to the ground, it probably means that the worthless stuff will be extracted. But what it implies, you see, is that what God plans is not a total end, but a work of purification. Verse 10 is the same. It says, all the sinners among my people will die by the sword. I mean, it's pretty awful, but it's also not total destruction. It is the sinners who will die. God's judgment will not, after all, be the end for Israel. That's the shock here. Now, this unexpected glimpse of hope opens up in verses 11 to 15 to a full panoramic vista. Um, We need to understand the language because the images are not the kind of thing we necessarily see and go, oh, awesome, but the people who it was first proclaimed to would have. What's described in these verses is their wildest dreams. Have a look at it with me. Verse 11, In that day I will restore David's fallen tent. I'll repair its broken places, restore its ruins, and build it as it used to be. It's an image of God bringing back the kingdom in David's line and restoring the fortunes of Israel back to their glory days. And it goes on, verse 12, So that you may possess the remnant of Edom, And all the nations that bear my name declares the Lord who will do these things. That is, Israel will not just return to her 
her former glory, but will prosper and other people will come to share in the blessing, just like they'd always hoped would happen. And then Amos finishes with this picture of abundance. The reaper will be overtaken by the ploughman, the, plant, the planter by the one treading grapes. That is, the harvests will be so abundant that they just can't even keep up. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. Can you, can you catch a sense of what it's getting at here? The hills just oozing over and pouring with produce and wine. And verse 14, I will bring back, says God, my exiled people Israel. They'll rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. Israel will be restored and they will enjoy it. And as verse 15 ends, it will last forever. God says, I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I've given them, says the Lord, your God. Those last words are striking in Amos. The phrase, your God, has not been used many times before, and it's always been negative. Prepare to meet your God, said Amos in chapter 4, and it meant judgment. But now, it's a sign of favor. God's blessing restored, relationship healed. And this highlights the fact that this future that is described here, is just a, it's just a total reversal of what we've seen until now in Amos. This is a picture of a future in which everything is restored, the wrongs of the past forgotten, everything turned around in blessing. Now this hope, I think, must have seemed just completely impossible to Amos and his first hearers, or if not impossible, just unimaginable. How could this possibly happen? How could it come about? It was a picture of the future that must have seemed just completely disconnected from their experience of life on the possible scenarios for the future that they could imagine. But that only made it clear that this was something that only God could bring about. It was a completely new thing that depended entirely on him. Did you notice how many times on the way through it said that this is something God will do? I will restore, verse 11. I will repair, the end of verse 12. Says the Lord, who will do these things? Says the Lord, that phrase has been all through Amos. Says the Lord, declares the Lord, says the Lord. But now it says the Lord, who will do these things? It's this guarantee, he will do it. He can do it. I will bring my people back, verse 14. I will plant them, verse 15. And this, of course, is, is just sheer grace. It's just a gift they did not deserve. Israel, as we've seen all through Amos, Israel just had no right to expect anything like this. No right, in fact, to expect anything except death. All hope had been lost. As I said before, the play was over. But then after all has been said and done, and all the questions have been answered, and they're not left with any complaints, there is hope because of God's grace. Because at the end of the day, God just will not let 
death be the end for his people, for his creation. God's last word will not be death, but life. At the very end of Amos, what we see is that although we have no reason to expect anything but death, God's grace means there will be life. Now, Amos only glimpsed this incredible promised hope. We, however, have seen it unveiled. In the New Testament, uh, in the book of Acts, in chapter 15, no need to turn to it, you can later, it's Acts chapter 15 in the middle, James, the brother of Jesus, in the early days of the church, speaks of how this passage in Amos has been fulfilled in Jesus. I think he means in his resurrection and through the proclamation of the gospel to all peoples. Through Jesus, he says, David's fallen tent, as Amos puts it, has been restored. You see, Jesus was the true king in David's line. And God has given him the whole world as his dominion. And through Jesus' resurrection from the dead, a whole new beautiful world has been opened up, has been begun. A world of life and blessing and joy. Amos declared God's gracious promise to give life from the dead. But in Jesus' resurrection, God has done it. In Jesus, God has spoken his last word for his creation. And it is life. I think the end of Amos really points us to Jesus and to the fact that in him we see how God will not let death be the end for his creation. Well, that's where Amos ends. Where does that leave us? How are we going to respond to this last moment in Amos? Well, to get at an answer, let me take you back to verse 10. It's the second half of verse 10. Did you notice the way that the sinners are identified there? The sinners are those who say, those who say disaster will not overtake or meet us. Now, this is typical of Amos. All throughout his prophecy, his strongest words have been for those who are complacent. Those who just want to keep on enjoying life and don't really want to hear about bad news. They don't want to listen to Amos' word of judgment. And they've tried to shut down prophecy. We heard about it in chapter 2, verse 12, when it talked about how they silenced the prophets. We, in, in chapter 6, he announced... Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, who lounge about on couches and don't grieve over the ruin of Jacob, Joseph, one of the two. And then in chapter 7, last week, the only narrative you get in Amos, the only insight we get into his life, is this encounter between Amos and the king, where the king basically is trying to shut him up. And here at the end of Amos... What we see is that that attitude of denial that there is a problem, of shutting out the word of God, that is the heart of what's wrong with Israel. It's at the center of sin. But now we also see at the very end that that attitude is not just sinful. It's a tragedy 
Because it finally means missing out on God's word of life. You see, here at the end of Amos, we discover that God's ultimate purpose in announcing judgment was to bring life, to lead Israel to the point where they could find hope in the only place it was possible, in the grace of God. But that could only happen if people were willing to listen to Amos's announcement of judgment. Only if they were willing to face the reality of their hopelessness. If they didn't come to see that they were dead, then they couldn't hear this promise of life. Imagine listening, imagine listening to a really awful conversation between a husband and a wife. Imagine a wife whose husband has wronged her deeply, who has been unfaithful over and over again, who has insulted her and taken her for granted. And imagine that she has had enough and is now telling him what she actually thinks, letting him know how appalling it has been for her, how awful he has been, and how she has decided that it's over. And imagine that as she talks and recalls the things he's done, you you just realise that things are completely one-sided. And that she is totally in the right. And that he is utterly pathetic and shameful. And that he deserves nothing other than what she says is going to happen. She's going to leave forever and take the kids and the house. Because no judge is ever going to find in favour of this man. And then imagine that right at the end, she says... Except I'm willing to forgive and forget it all and start again with you. Not because you deserve it, but just because I'd rather save you. And it's the most beautiful thing in the world. It's the most amazing thing you've ever heard. And you can't believe it could be possible. And you look at the husband and you think, what are you waiting for? But then you realize that he hasn't heard any of it. Because when she started to speak, he put his iPod on and turned it up and he's been drowning her out the whole time. He was so unwilling to hear about his guilt and the judgment that he deserved that he missed out on grace. He missed out on life. I think the book of Amos is really a bit like that. As God speaks to Israel, it becomes very clear he's not being nasty or unfair. He has been generous and patient, but things cannot go on like this. His judgment is real and it's coming and Israel really can't complain. But then right at the end, we hear this incredibly gracious word, a promise of new life, a hope for restoration. And we realize in a flash why Israel's unwillingness to listen to Amos to the word of God, has been so terrible. Because at the end of the day, there's not just judgment, there's hope. But if they won't listen to the judgment, they won't hear about the hope. So brothers and sisters, as we finish Amos, let me urge you to 
Let me urge us all to make sure we don't make the same mistake. In Jesus, God has given his incredible last word for this world. In raising from the dead, he has guaranteed that evil and sin will not be the end. Sometimes the world can be very depressing. Sometimes we can be very depressing. But in the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead, we have God's promise made certain that there is hope for this world and for us. His last word is life. And that's why we must make sure that we keep awake. Why we must make sure that we don't shut out his word and that we don't block our ears when he speaks, but that we listen to God and take seriously what he says and that we keep working to see things in the light of his word because God's last word is grace and life, but we won't hear it. We won't be able to hear it unless we really know how much we need it. And that's why I think it's been really good for us to read Amos together as a church and why we are going to continue to read the difficult bits of the Bible together. Mark sort of is, and I'm sorry about the pun, but we'll come back to stuff which is like Amos. It's why we should all want to give our support in prayer, in time and in money to sustaining the ministry of God's word. Um, Don't think that I think that doesn't apply to me because I'm a minister. I'm called to this as well. But can I say also, because I'm not really in this position... Those who proclaim the word and do so on a bigger public scale, they need our support. Because it is not easy to announce judgment. We should want to support churches and leaders that are willing to say hard things. Because we need, we need to keep being confronted with the reality of the world that we are in and the reality of our situation apart from God's grace. And we need it because there are just so many false hopes available to us. All we need is better education, new technology, more effort, a new consensus, freer markets, a grassroots movement, a democratic revolution. All I need is a bit more money, a new relationship, a better job, more time, more exercise. Whether for the world or for ourselves, we have so many ways of convincing ourselves that it's all going to be okay. That disaster will not overtake or meet us. Brothers and sisters, there is a beautiful, unimaginable hope for this world and for ourselves. But we will never realize it's there if we don't know how deep our problem is. So let's make it our ambition to be people and to be a church that is committed to not sugarcoating the truth about the world and to supporting the preaching of the word of God in our community and in our country. Because the judgment of God is very real. But more than that, his last word is grace and life. And it would be tragic to miss out on that because we were asleep.
We're going to finish there. And as a way of finishing, we're going to sing uh, a hymn. It's a hymn that draws our eyes to God's beautiful promises of hope. It's my second favourite hymn. Um, it's going to be... It's, look, to be honest, it's a bit old. It's got old words. And it's quite difficult to sing. But you'll cope because it's absolutely beautiful. And what I like about it is that it highlights the fact that we, like Amos, we don't know everything about what's to come. It's God's business redeeming the world. But we have his guarantee in Jesus that the last word for this world and for us can be grace and life. And so as we sing, let's let this great hope be a great encouragement to us to keep awake in the present time as we wait for Jesus. Let's sing.